section. Um, let me pray and we'll dig into Ruth together. Heavenly Father, we do ask please now that you would uh, cause our hearts to be uh, attentive, captured by the truth of your word. Help me speak words that are true and faithful uh, and helpful. And Father, we pray please that through this time you might grow us and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things about preaching is you're always trying to find a way to kind of grab your attention and say, this is worth listening to. Now, for some of you tonight, just hearing that we're finally getting to Ruth, uh, that's enough. You know a little bit about Ruth. You've perhaps read it before, been somewhere and heard something of it. You know it's a love story. You love love stories. And this is a classic love story. It's got tensions. It's got um, uh, uh, sort of fears, uh, um, destroy devastation hopelessness it's got twists and turns and then it all works out wonderfully boy meets girl girl gets boy and uh it, it spoiler alert it ends happily uh they get together they get married it's a wonderful beautiful story and so for many of you just hearing that we're going to start into ruth tonight that's enough you're in you're waiting you've been looking forward to this for a long time but what about the rest of you what about the men uh actually uh well you could be like liam just wait till Esther comes along because that's brutal. Did you notice how he talked about that? Red Ruth, red Esther. His eyes lit up. It is, it's powerfully exciting when you get to Esther. What do you do if you're not into Ruth so much? Well, you remember it's God's word. And you get in touch with your feminine side and come in touch with, there's a beautiful thing about a love story. It really is powerful and helpful. But I want to say it's much more than that. It is, it is something far more significant than just a love story. In the four chapters, uh, the love story sits in the middle of it. It's a big driver of it, of course. But let me offer what I think Ruth is actually about. I want to suggest to you, Ruth, and I want to show you this, Ruth is about God at work in ordinary people's lives. It's about what it looks like to have the God of the universe at work in ordinary people in the midst of their tragedy and despair. When things go bad, when there's loss and grief, Ruth is a book that helps you see how God works. You see, it's far bigger than a love story. I mean, you get that from the end of the book, actually. When you get to the end of the book, um, I mean, how would you expect a love story to end? You'd expect, if it was a love story, that would end with boy, girl, together, married, off into the sunset together, you know, music cues. But what you get at the end of this book is the mother-in-law, Naomi, thrilled and full. Not the couple, the mother-in-law. Now, you know, I love my mother-in-law, but when I got married, I wasn't thinking she was the great thing I was waiting for at the end of it. So when you see Naomi at the end of the book and the beginning, it makes you realise there's something else going on through this story that's not just about boy meets girl. Now, it is really a very powerful story and surprising for only four chapters how much is packed into it. And in the midst of all of that, here's the big thing, it's about hope. It's about hope in the midst of despair. It's a book that says to us, there's always hope. No matter what you're going through, there's always hope. It's a great book 
and we, uh, we're going to have a good time together. Now, here's the plan. Uh, being a short book, you could actually just sit down and read the whole thing in one sitting. 20, 25 minutes, you get through it fairly easily. Only four chapters. Uh, and you'll get the whole flow of the thing. We're not going to do that together. We're going to take it slow. We're going to go chapter by chapter, sort of like a Netflix series. We'll do night by night on it. And we're going to be doing that because there's so much in it. There's so much richness and detail. And I want us to... Um, I want us to live in the story, get to know the characters and get to know what's happening and in particular see how it's written that we might hear the way God has put, inspired a master craftsman who's written this book. It's quite profound. So what I'm going to do with this, we're going to read a few verses, I'll make some comments about those verses and then step back a little bit and see the bigger picture and some of the background stuff go into the text again and work our way through, uh, make a few more comments, step back again, get to the end and I'll pull it all together and show us the big things that this is about. So there's the plan, get your Bibles, Ruth chapter 1, let's dig in. Verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Right away, what the book does for us, what the author does, is put it in context. He tells us, she tells us, whether the author is a man or a woman, tells us that this happened, these events, in the time of the judges. Now, if you were with us last week, Jez took us through the whole background of that, the whole book of Judges, which is the book just before Ruth in your Bible, and helps us see uh, some of the context there. Uh, what we have is a little snapshot of one family living through the historical time of that judges period. Now the judges period, it was a mess. The country of Israel, it was a place where if you look at the very last chapter, the very last verse of the book of Judges, just, you know, if you look to your left there, you'll see the book of Judges, verse 25, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. In the absence of a great authority power, who was benevolent and good, everyone just went off and did their own thing. The period of the judges was the Wild West. It was a period, as Jez helped us see last week, when might was right. And when might is right, the vulnerable are in a very dangerous context. And the vulnerable in the Wild West are women. And that's the context for us talking about Naomi. Then you get the next four verses uh, that uh, take us into a real focus on this one family in the time of the judges and we're told that there's a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Jude, Judah, uh, together with his wife, Naomi, two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Uh, so a father takes his wife, two boys and off they go looking for food. Uh, while they're there, uh, the sons, uh, they get married, verse 4. They marry women from that region, Moabite women. The father dies, the two sons die. Verse 5, Naomi is left without her two sons and a husband. In the time of the judges, when it's the Wild West, she's alone. It's dangerous. Now those first five verses uh, take you through 10 years of their life. And let me just step back a touch and 
give us some thoughts about how, how this whole thing's put together. It's very clever writing and it's important to notice some of this. The first five verses, 10 years of history, and you get it reported for us in this kind of staccato. It's sort of bang, 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 dies, 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 marries. It's just, it's just no, no sort of detail, just uh, bangs it out for us. But then you get to verse 6 and the account slows down. From verse 8, the writer focuses on a series of conversations uh, between Naomi, her daughters-in-law, and then later in the chapter, Naomi and the people in Bethlehem. So just notice this. First five verses, 10 years of history, bang, bang, bang. The next 20 or so verses in chapter 1, it's 10 minutes of history. It really is focused in just these very rich conversations and interactions that occur over a very short period of time. Now the point of all of that is to let you know that the writer wants you to focus on the second half of the chapter, not the first five verses. The first five verses are there just to set the scene. But, having said that, we do need to slow down a bit because we're Australians, 21st century. Uh, we're not the original hearers, readers, who understood all the background and context and so we do need just to pay a little bit of attention to those first five verses to get some of the things that would have been very obvious back in the day. Two things. First one, famine. Literally in verse one there was a famine. The word famine is actually literally says uh, there was no bread in the land and the word Bethlehem there in verse one actually is the word that means house of bread and so what you have here is a verse saying that there's no bread in the house of bread. The place where there ought to have been, there wasn't. Things are bad. The time of the judges, Israel's a mess. Second thing, Moab. They went to live for a while, verse 1, in the country of Moab. This man takes his family off to Moab. Now, a little bit of background about Moab because it plays into the whole book. It's important for us to get a sense of this. Moab. Moab's got a history with Israel. This is not just another country. This is a country that was hostile towards Israel. Israel was okay, but Moab was dead against it and it had been going on forever. Moab had actively worked to seduce the Israelites away from their faith in God. They hated the Israelites, they hated their God, and they actually worked to undermine their faith and destroy them. On another occasion, Israel was trying to just travel through their land to get to their own land. Moab wouldn't let them. There was this hostility and viciousness towards Israel. They then, on another occasion, got a set of priests to bring curses down upon them, to bring about their ruin. This is a bad place. They're an enemy of Israel. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, the Israelites were told not to go to Moab, not to marry a Moabite. Uh, very uh, hostile context. Now, all of this matters to know because, a couple of reasons, Ruth is from Moab. And that'll be very important for us as we go through. In fact, we're told that Ruth is a Moabitess a number of times when we didn't even need to hear it. The author keeps reminding us she's from Moab. Second thing we need to know about Moab, the reason is because the dad. The dad took his family 
to Moab. Now, was it a sin that he did this? Well, he wasn't a hero of the Israelite faith, let's put it that way. David, a little while later uh, in 1 Samuel 22, he takes his parents to Moab and there's no condemnation of it. Um, and so, and he's not, he doesn't die because of anything like this. And so was it a sin? It's against what God says to do, uh, but there are different periods of history through Israel and so on. Uh, but I can tell you what, at the very least it is, it's a context where this man, Elimelech, is not a strong believer in the things of God. He has a half-baked faith, because what he should have done was stay in Bethlehem, repent, pray to the Lord and wait for him to provide. Instead, he went to their enemies, to the country of Moab, taking his family there. And let me just make a quick comment from that to us, particularly speaking to men, actually. Um, most of you one day will get married. I know it's hard to believe, but one day it'll happen. Many of you are already married, of course. Um, I want you to notice this, that there's lots of things that are different about our context culturally and theirs. One of the things that's different is that to move out of the region of Palestine, Israel, into another country, into Moab, was for people in their time to leave behind the people of faith. It was to leave behind the covenant community. Because it was in Israel that the tabernacle was, the priests and the sacrifices and the, the readings of the Bible and so on. That's, to go to Moab was to leave the people of God behind and to go into hostile territory. Now, in our day, you can move regions, you can move state and still find the people of God. It's not like one region is the promised land and to leave it is to lose the blessing of God. No, 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 it's not, that's very different to our time. But some things are the same. Fathers and their decisions impact the spiritual life of children quite profoundly. Mothers impact their children spiritually as well, but fathers do it disproportionately. This man took his family away from the people of God. Verse 2, he was just going to do it for a little while, verse 1. But they ended up staying in Moab. And his sons put down roots in Moab. They married Moabite women. They settled there. He might have had a half-baked faith, but the kids, it turns out, seem to have had no faith at all. Now, young men, be aware of the impact your choices and decisions one day will have for people around you, your family. Actually, be aware that that's the case now. No, no man's an island entire of themselves. Your choices as, as men and women impact the people around you all the time. But when you move into a marriage context with children... Be aware, particularly fathers, of the impact you'll have on the spiritual well-being of your children. If, if you live your life pursuing lifestyle, career, money, food, if you live your life moving for these reasons and paying very little regard to embedding yourself in the people of God and nurturing your kids' faith in the people of God, it'll play out in the lives of your kids. It did with Elimelech. 
back to their world. Naomi, the mum, the wife. Verse 5, it's bad. She's lost a husband, she's lost her two sons, now she's alone with two widows who are foreign women from Moabite, from Moab. And it's in the time of judges, the time of dog-eat-dog. There's no job keeper, there's no welfare. They're on their own, without provision, without protection. They're in trouble. Now the story slows down. Verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them as he was going to. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Now just notice that word return in verse 6. It's used a number of times through this chapter and the word return in the original language, the Hebrew language, is actually a word that can also uh, mean repent. So you can use the same word to return somewhere or repent of your betrayal, your hostility towards God. And it's hard not to notice that perhaps the writer is drawing attention to the fact that Ruth, uh, Naomi doesn't just return to Bethlehem, there's a sense of repentance as she comes back to the people of God. And then, verse 8, we get the first spoken words in the book of Ruth. Naomi speaks and she says to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands. May the Lord grant each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She begins this set of speeches to persuade her daughters-in-law to leave her and go back to Moab. Now Naomi, Naomi goes hard at it. Verse 11, return home my daughters, why come with me? Um, she insists that they leave her and go. And let me just summarise the speeches if I can. Naomi effectively is saying to her daughters-in-law, don't come with me, go back there because I've got nothing. You come with me and you'll have nothing. I, I, I am completely emptied. Now verse 14, one of the daughters is convinced and she says goodbye. Now there's no criticism of her leaving Naomi to go back to Moab. Uh, the author's not saying that she did something wrong. In fact, it took a couple of pushes from Naomi to get her to go. Uh, it, it seems that what she's doing is a reasonable thing to go back and find a husband and find a life. Only Ruth is left. Now in this too, let me just step back again and offer another piece of background which is helpful to see it matters for the rest of the story. Let me give you this bit of background, it's there in verse 12. Did you notice uh, as Emma was reading it for us that uh, one of the reasons Naomi says that you ought not come back to Israel with her is that she's too old to have another husband, even if I thought I was, there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No. Now that's an extraordinary piece of argument, isn't it? Could you imagine trying to persuade a couple of women not to go with you and thinking I've got to pull out everything to make them realise there's no hope coming with me so I'll just explain to them how I'm not going to have kids in time for them to grow up and marry you as if they were wondering whether that might happen. How things are different today. No one needs to be persuaded that a child might one day grow up who's their brother-in-law and marry them 
Uh, it's just a very different culture then to today. And we need to appreciate this. It was, very, it was a significant thing back in the, in the early centuries in Israel. And here it was. Um, if a woman's husband dies, then it's important that another relative of the husband take her on as a wife. Why? Because that's the only way to protect her family name, the husband's family name, and any children that might come. And it's the only way to protect the property of the dead husband that's now come to the wife. And if it's not, if she's not married and has a child, then it will be lost when she dies. So here in an ancient context was an important thing to protect the woman and the property that she has for her children from the husband. We need to appreciate this because of future weeks. It was very important in Israel that this kind of thing happened. I guess it would make you think twice about who you'd marry because there was a package deal that came along with it. But the point is this, she's saying to the girls, to the women, I've got nothing. I've got no way to provide for you. I've got no way to protect you. I've got nothing. And notice in all of this, the emotion. Did you, did you see it as we went through? Because the writer goes to town on how they were all feeling. You look there at verse 9. In verse 9 you hear that uh, they kiss one another, they weep aloud. Verse 14, they weep aloud and they kiss one another and Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. Um, there's this deep emotion that's being reflected for us by the author who kind of shows us all the things were happening, the tears, the crying, the clinging to each other and so on, the pleading with each other. Now, notice this. When the author told us about Naomi losing her husband and her two kids, two sons, there was no mention of emotion. Now, I dare say she was very emotional. That would be extraordinarily grievous. She talks about being empty. But the author pays no attention to the emotion there. The emotion here is what he particularly focuses on. Why? To set the scene for Ruth. You see, Naomi's in a terrible place. The daughters-in-law, they know that. They love her. They don't want to leave her. But to go with her would be crazy. It would be to go into a place where you'll end up with nothing. She's got nothing. She's empty. Did you notice there in verse 12 too, she uses the word hope and says she has no hope. She's without hope. She's hopeless. And actually right at this point, massive questions are raised for us. What is Naomi's future as she goes back? Is there anything good in her future? Where is God in her future? Is there any hope? But all of this sets the scene for Ruth, the one that this book is named after. One daughter-in-law leaves, there's no criticism, she's doing the most sane and sensible thing. But what will Ruth do? Well, Ruth speaks, verse 16. And it's perhaps some of the most beautiful words that are ever spoken in the whole Bible. In fact, many of you may find yourself, as I'm going to read these words, or as Emma read it before to us, many of you may find yourself going, I've heard these words before. 
I didn't know they were from the Bible. They're words and statements that have actually found their way into popular culture. They're so wonderful and powerful and profound. Listen to them again, verse 16. Then Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. They're extraordinary words. Ruth pledges herself to Naomi and her God to be for Naomi and to commit herself to Naomi and her God, even though it will cost her everything, even though she'll have no hope of marriage and family and children, even security and protection. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful act of love. Ruth loves Naomi and is determined to commit herself to Naomi for Naomi's good, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Imagine having someone love you like that. Now we are here meant to slow right down and pay attention. We're meant to pay attention to Ruth. The, the writer wants us to see how impressive she is. Notice too that she's actually now converted. Uh, she uses in verse 17 uh, the personal name of God and if you haven't picked this up when you're reading your English uh, Old Testament if you ever see the word Lord all in capitals not just with the, the first letter capital but every letter in capital, capitals it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh which is God's personal name not just God but his personal name like the Queen has a personal name Elizabeth Yahweh is God's personal name and what you have here is Ruth saying that she now knows God as Yahweh in a personal relationship she's been converted but what we're also meant to notice is what she's done her act of love now why do I know we're meant to notice that because this act this action of Ruth is mentioned twice more in the book it's mentioned in chapter 2 verse 11 and chapter 3 verse 11 in chapter 2 verse 11 uh, Boaz says I've been told what you've done for your mother-in-law in chapter 3 you are a woman of noble character and all the town knows it what the author is doing is saying look at Ruth notice Ruth she is a remarkable woman she's a model for women that's why the book is named after her and one of the reasons the book is written is to show us Ruth that we might learn from her what love is by seeing her in action and this is big this is not the big thing I'm going to come to the big thing in a second but this is big this is big throughout the whole book of Ruth grab this one um, what is love? Do you know, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, one, of the, one of the 
I was going to say great things about getting older. One of the great things about being older is you, you, you get to, to have seen a lot, of, a lot of time, a lot of people, a lot of culture that's happened over the years. And let me just offer, this last period of history is one of the most insane periods of history that you are all growing up in. Uh, we're all living in. And if there's ever been in time in history when we need to learn what love is, it's this period. You see, let me ask the question, what is love? How would you answer that question? How would a person today answer the question? See, see if I said love is dot, 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 what would you say, fill in those dots? Love is, love is, love. Love is love. There you go. Question answered. Or so our world says. And I don't know, but I'm tempted to say that is the dumbest definition of love in history. But it's actually not so dumb. It's actually very clever, but just perverse. It's very clever because it means you can't define love. We're now in a place in history where people say, what is love? Love is love. And what's being said in all of that is, I take it, love is whatever you want it to be. Whatever you take to be love, whatever you feel love is, well, that's love for you and don't let anyone judge you for it. Love is love. There's no way you can say what it is or isn't. Don't let anyone tell you what it is or isn't. Whatever you want it to be, let it be. Our world has gone insane. You see, what is love? At one level, one of the reasons the Bible was written was to teach us what love is. And the Bible does it in all kinds of different ways. Here in this book, it uses Ruth. And in a couple of weeks' time, we'll see it uses Boaz. What's love? Her speech, her character, help us see what love is. What is it? Let me offer this definition. Love is the tender commitment of one person to another for their good, at cost to themselves. Love. The very heart of love is faithful commitment, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. That's what love is. It is not merely the emotional, erotic feelings of in and out with whoever you have. That's not what the Bible says love is. Love is the tender commitment of one person or another for their sake, whatever the cost, that they might gain, not you. And at the heart of love is faithful commitment, loyalty, whatever the cost. You know, there's so much attention in this chapter paid to the costliness of Ruth staying with Naomi. That's why we get all the emotion. That's why we get told about the daughter-in-law that leaves after being persuaded that she'll have nothing if she goes. But that Ruth stays is astonishing. You know, the Bible, this book actually uses a word for this kind of love. And I'm going to teach you a Hebrew word. Here's the Hebrew word. It's hesed. You probably need to say it with a guttural, but it's hesed. Hesed. It's worth remembering because it's a little word that captures an important idea and it's used a number of times through Ruth. 
You'll see it whenever you see the language of loving kindness. It's there in verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8. The hesed of God, the loving kindness of God. And what is hesed? It's the kindness of a person, of someone who commits, who binds themselves to another for their good, for better, for worse. Ruth is a picture of hesed. That kind of love. Let me give you a modern picture. Robinson McQuilkin was the president of a Bible college in the United States of America. Uh, he, was, uh, lead, he was the president of this college that was raising up young men and women for missionary service and pastoral work and under his leadership it was growing and expanding to fill an important need uh, worldwide as, and so on. It was a critical role. His wife of 40 years got Alzheimer's. Friends said that he ought to put her into an institution where she could be looked after. He chose to resign his position and take up being her full-time carer and embrace the pain of daily losing her. He has a very moving account of... Um, the days his wife just doesn't know who he is, is just hostile towards him. And every act of love hurts and grieves him as he engages with this care of a woman who is slowly disappearing. But there are moments and glimmers of the times when he... Extraordinary grief and pain for him as he loved her. And he said this, let me quote, When the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health till death do us part. This was no grim duty to which I stoically resigned, however. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvellous devotion. Now it was my turn. And such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. He had a no moment's hesitation. He resigned his job to be a full-time carer with all the grief because that's Hesed love. Who is not moved by a story like that? Now, why are we moved? Why are we inspired by? despite the foolishness of the world that's teaching us that love is love, whatever you want it to be, when we hear this kind of love, we are moved deeply in our being. Why? We still know true love when we see it. Why? Because we are made in the image of God, who made us like himself to be people of love, to be people of tender, sacrificial faithfulness. There's a nobility and a grandeur about that love. It's inspiring. And it's meant to because God in his very being is Hesed love. The one who binds himself to others for their good at cost to himself faithfully, for better, for worse. And making us in his image means that we, we have the, the apparatus within our hearts 
to sense that still as a powerful and beautiful thing. You see, the Bible gives these pictures of Ruth and we'll see a man picture of it next week. The Bible gives us these pictures of Hesed love and then blows them out of the water. With the greatest act of love the universe has ever seen. When the child of Ruth and Boaz is born, that child becomes the father of a father of a father of a father, the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes from the Heavenly Father to live amongst us and to die for us because of God's love, who could not give his world up but was determined to pay a cost to win us back. By Jesus' death on the cross, he pays our debt, makes it possible for us to be forgiven, our sins washed away. And that act of God, that act of Hesed love, wasn't for a partner who had been faithful to him for decades. It was for people who had rebelled against him, who had been hostile. 1 John 4 says, this is love. Listen, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Friends, learn the lesson. Get in touch with that side that can feel the wonder of love, Hesed love, and let it let it help you see the wonder and glory of God in his love for his world that empowers and fuels all of these smaller incidences. Thank him for it. Rejoice that he is this kind of God and learn to be like him. Be like Ruth. You see, can I speak to women? Ruth is a picture of womanhood. And it's glorious. There's a sense in which she's weak. She's vulnerable. She's in a world where might is right and she won't therefore survive easily on her own. There is a weakness that she has, but she is no fragile wallflower. She's no ceramic thing easily broken. She is tough and strong. And she's tough and strong in her character. She's powerful where it counts. She is someone who commits and binds and works at it and gives herself to others. She embodies the proverbs that charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman of noble character, there's glory and greatness. Be like Ruth. Actively let go of the culture around us that's giving us all kinds of messages about what a woman should be like. And go straight back to the source, the one that God has given us, because that one's inspiring. You see, this is the big thing, a big thing in the book of Ruth. It's about love. It's about Hesed love. We'll see it play out all the way through the book, but it's not the big thing. The big thing, which we'll deal with now finally, is in Naomi's last speech. Have a look there in verse 20. Naomi's now back in Bethlehem 
they've arrived there. Ruth is standing by her side as they arrive in the small town. And verse 20, she speaks. And listen to what she says. Don't call me Naomi any longer. Naomi means sweet, by the way. Don't call me sweet. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Very short speech in the town of Bethlehem, where she returns. She's now at rock bottom. And here's the big thing. It's there in her speech. You see, she has it right and she has it wrong. Tease these out. She has it right. She rightly sees that all the circumstances of life, her life, have been lived under the sovereign hand of God. Notice the language. This is, just take some care here. If you look at verse 21, 20 and 21, you, you'll see the, the idea of God mentioned four times. Uh, he's called the Almighty in verse 20, 21 he's called the Lord and then he's called the Lord again and then at the end of 21 he's called the Almighty again. Two different words for God, Almighty, Lord. Almighty starts her sentence, her comment, finishes it, the Lord sits between. Now what's the difference between those two words? Well, the, 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 the language of Lord, all in capitals, is that covenant hesed God. The language of Almighty is the Hebrew word Shaddai and it's a word that refers to the power and the might and the greatness of God. The Almighty is a great English translation. And what she's saying correctly is that her life has been lived under the power of the Almighty God. The Lord God takes and gives Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job 1. The Lord does as he pleases in, in the powers of heaven and in the principalities and powers on the earth. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 4. The Lord God works out everything in conformity with his will. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. God is the Almighty. It's the testimony all the way through the scriptures. She's got it right. God does as he pleases no one can stay his hand and everything that's happened to her is because the Lord God has willed it in her life. She knows that's right and she's right to know it. But she's wrong. She says she's come back empty. Really? Look who's standing next to you, Naomi. Here is a woman who has given her love to you like no other person has loved anyone else. You're not empty. You've got Ruth. But here's the thing. You, and all of us will have to face this one day. You can get so low. You can get hit by so many tragedies. It's part of grief that your horizons shrink and you can't see anymore clearly what really is going on. Your world gets smaller and all you can see is the horrible things. And you can't see out of that to see the other good things going on. It's part of what happens in grief. And Naomi's in that place. I've come back empty. Call me bitter. But you're not empty. 
She's lost so much, husbands and sons, but she hasn't got nothing. If only she could lift her eyes to see. And look at how beautifully the writer puts it. Look at verse 22. Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. Now listen to this. Arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. What the author's doing is saying, she's come back empty. Right at the time when empty baskets were beginning to be filled in the barley harvest. And there's the little picture of what's about to happen to Naomi. You know, the message of the book is this. Right at the time when you're at your lowest, God is right there with you, plotting your future for good, that you be filled again. And that's a powerful truth because God is the almighty God. Nothing happens apart from his will. Here's why the Bible keeps talking about the sovereignty of God. And here's why we keep banging on about it in our church. Because the only hope we have in the midst of tragedy and loss, that there might be a glimmer of hope for the future, is that if God is sovereign, if he's sovereign over the principalities and powers of evil, if he's the God who's sovereign over good and bad, it's only if God is sovereign over everything that you have any hope that he can actually make good out of bad. If not, we have no hope. And it's also the case that we bang on a lot about humility and repentance and faith. Because who are the ones that he promises to bring good to? It's the humble. The ones who have bent the knee and repented, come back, returned to God. The weak and the broken who have put their trust in Jesus, Naomi. Who may not have lived a stellar life of the faithful godly Israelite. But she's repented and come back and they're the people God delights in she's a nobody she's got nothing she's humble and they're exactly the people God loves and here it is right at her lowest right at the moment in her deepest sorrow God was plotting her greatest satisfaction if she could just see it it was the time of the barley harvest it was about to begin. Do you believe this? The Bible insists it's true. For those that have humbled themselves before him. That he will be with you in the valley of the shadow of death. He'll be your shepherd right there. He is working all things together for good, for your good. If you love him in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God the Almighty is on his throne, and he is the God of hesed, love. He is committed to the humble, the broken, who have bent the knee to Jesus. He is committed to them and will fulfill his promise to them, to fill them up again. And he's doing it all in the unspectacular. 
You know, there's no miracle through the book of Ruth. There's no vision. There's no prophetic words. There's no signs and wonders. There's no writing on a wall. There's nothing spectacular about God suddenly appearing in an amazing way. None of that. God's hidden all the way through the book. Naomi and Ruth, they're not unaware that God is in their circumstances. But what Naomi hasn't reckoned on is the hesed of God, the faithful, loving commitment of the God of the universe to the humble, the broken and the lowly, so that standing next to her is Ruth as the barley harvest is about to begin. And Ruth will be the means God uses to bring blessing to this broken woman. Brothers and sisters, he's with you. He's with you whatever you're going through. He's with you in your sorrow, your loneliness, your fears and anxieties, your despair, your sense of hopelessness. He's with you in that, which means that you never need to be without hope. There's nothing you can go through that leaves you hopeless. Why? Because of God, the God of Hesed, love. Whatever you're in, he'll be with you in it. And he will lift you up in due course. Trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the beautiful picture of your Hesed love your kindness, tenderness, your power and strength to commit to the humble and the brokenhearted, to the ordinary, the unspectacular, people like us. We thank you that we can be assured that with you by our side, at work in our world, we have always got hope, no matter what we're going through. We pray that would sustain us, please, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this next song says...